This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On November 17th, 1968 at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the professional football world, especially Jets and Raiders fans, were rocked to their core. Moments before, Jim Turner knocked the 26-yard field goal through the uprights with a minute and five seconds left on the clock. Then, NBC goes a commercial. And as it comes back, much to the dismay of these aforementioned fans, a movie called Heidi was aired. It was a turning point in TV history and how they would, in the future, schedule NFL games. The day before, this week's guest had a turning point in his life himself. It also revolved around a football game. But he did not have to deal with the TV getting turned to another channel because he was witnessing history at the Big House. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time we stuff the DeLorean. That date is November 16th, 1968, and we're here at the big house. We talked about this in the introduction. We're sitting side by side with this week's guest, Ken McGee. As we find out in the interview a little bit later, maybe it's a good thing that he has a little bit of supervision. Besides that, the reason that we're here is to witness a little bit of history in the making. You see, running back Ron Johnson was way ahead of his time because he had Madden-style statistics against the Wisconsin Badgers, rushing 31 times for five touchdowns and a Michigan school record of 300, yet with the number three, 347 rushing yards in one game. That's not in multiple games. A rushing record that has yet to be broken. And this week's guest can point to this as a turning point for his fandom to become one of the foremost collectors of U of M football memorabilia on the planet. More on that later. But first, this week's guest, Ken McGee, is a co-author of a book soon to be released titled The Ultimate Michigan Football Program and Ticket Guide. This book is going to be massive. You might need to get a forklift to pick this thing up if you're trying to move it around the house. You'll have photos and a little blurb from every single Michigan football game ever played. Now, his co-author is Brian Snyder. There's even an introductory letter from former President Gerald R. Ford while he was still in office. Yes, you heard that. While he was still in office. So this book has been in the making for quite a long time. And to learn more about this book and this week's guest, Ken McGee, you can head over to the SportsHistoryNetwork.com website. There's a link directly over to this webpage over on the show notes. While you're at it, if you enjoy the show, I mean, come on, man. You got to please at least share this with one person so they can become a fan, too. In this episode, it'd be great if you shared it with at least one Michigan fan so they can learn about this book that Ken has coming out with Brian Snyder. Tell them the best thing to do is head to TheFootballHistoryDude.com, which will take them straight over to my page over on the Sports History Network website. That way they can check out everything I got going on. Again, that's the footballhistorydude.com. But for now, 
let's get into the interview with Ken McGee. What I wanted to do is I wanted to first, we're going to get into the book, but let's just give more like a little bit of a background on you, the author and everything like, so what's your first memory that you have of becoming like a major fan of the Wolverines football team? Well, I remember the very first game I went to was in the early 60s when Michigan played Navy. My mom took me to that game. But my first super vid- vivid memory was in 1968, the last game of the season, Boat. And at the big house and uh, Bo Schembechler hadn't gotten there yet. And it was Michigan's game against Wisconsin, torrential downpour of snow, horrible conditions. And Ron Johnson, an all American college football hall of famer ran for 347 yards that day. And I went to the game by myself and, and it was back in the day. I lived only a couple miles away from the stadium and you could just walk down to the stadium as a kid. But, you know, keep in mind, I'm 10 years old at this time going to the game by myself. But it was a different day and age. So that was a great memory. I sat underneath the north end zone. I think I was one of 10 people left in the stadium. And watched Ron Johnson run wild for 347 yards, which is still a Michigan record, as well as I believe it's still a Big Ten record. Well, that's not bad for being a game where you're that young, being able to go see that big, you know, monster record. Oh yeah, and 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 back in the day, you could go to the games. I I very rarely went with my mom after I was five years old. I went with my friends. We rode our bikes to the game. We learned how to sneak into the stadium. So the dollar my mom would give us for a ticket or a student ticket, we'd we'd use. Uh, we'd sneak into the games and and I used it to buy popcorn or a hot dog or something. Yeah, and back then too, I got to imagine the uh, the concessions were more reasonable than they would be nowadays. Absolutely, as well as the ticket prices. Yeah, I've only been to one game at the big house for being, you know, such a big fan of just in general football. My aunt was huge, huge Michigan. And it was, I'm trying to think of the year, maybe 2001 or 2000. It was against Illinois. And it was like 73 to four to seven. or It was something stupid crazy. We were sitting in the student section, you know, at the at really close, maybe about 10 rows up. It was awesome in just a different experience because I had always gone to like Lions games as opposed to going to like a college game. Just like the big wave around it going back and forth and just the, the having the, the band and everything. It was just a totally different experience. Yeah. It's an unbelievable experience. I've been to hundreds of games, and and I love them. Every every game, I just love the festivities. And we do a lot more at the games besides go to the game. I'm also involved with honoring the military veteran of the game at each game. I give a speech to the veteran that's going to be on the field. We present them with what's called a challenge coin, as well as a small little card. It's like an old football card with his pictures from his days in the military. And uh, we honor him and uh, this tailgate picnic and, and before the game. And then in the third quarter, they have the veteran on the game of the game on in the end zone on the north, end, north side. And 110,000 people stand up and cheer for the vet. Sometimes they're World War II uh, veterans, Vietnam, Korean War. We've honored one man that was 104 years old. We've honored POWs. We've honored Congressional Medal of Honor recipients. You name it, we've honored them. So that's just one of the other things. Just so many different things that happen at the big house. So is that honoring the veteran uh, like a, a local hero or is it just any anybody that might even be an away team no what happens is uh 
people hear about the military veteran of the game and they apply to the university through the athletic department's website and the university selects them. So they don't have to be a graduate of Michigan. They, in reality, they don't even have to be a Michigan fan. Um, but it seems like most of them are, uh, but who, who knows? Yes. I know that, uh, one individual was, uh, was an army cadet as a matter of fact. So, um, there's or an army graduate from West Point. So, with that being said, it could be anybody. I think they'd like to have a uh, more of a uh, Wolverine twist and flavor to the whole thing. But the university selects them, and after that, we take care of them, this nonprofit organization that I belong to. And, and to give some love, what was that nonprofit organization's name? Veteransofthegame.org. Veterans, with an S, of the game.org. If you went to it, You'd see a lot of really cool pictures of a lot of people that um, are basically the greatest generation we've ever had because the way they fought in World War II is the reason that you and I are speaking in English right now. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's uh, veteransofthegame.org again, and I'm going right there so we can pull it up. And yeah, there's some some interesting photos and videos on here. So, By the way, if, if any of your collectors... Uh, or if any of your listeners collect challenge coins, we also sell challenge coins that have a Michigan football flavor to them, but also with the various military logos on it. And it's uh, we produce one for each year, one style of coin, and we market those coins to raise money for the nonprofit organization. And they can just get hold of me if they wanted to to pick up one of those coins. So, okay, so I I don't know if I'm. What is a challenge coin? A challenge coin is basically a coin that is um, about the size of a silver dollar. And the coins were made many, many years ago in military circles for different units within the military. So sometimes they'd carry these coins even while they were in combat or behind enemy lines. And one of the reasons they would have them is you would, if you were to say to someone, I'm with this platoon, and you would say, well, how do I know that? And you pull out your coin. So if you're challenged, it also evolved into a bit of a drinking game. So if you walked into a bar and somebody challenged you and you didn't have your coin, they'd punch you in the shoulder and then you had to buy a drink. But for example, that's what a challenge coin looks like right there. Uh, you can see on our podcast, your listeners can't, but it's got the American flag. It's got a Michigan football that says go blue. It's got the block M. It says military veteran of the game. Then you flip it over and there's another block M in a different color. And there's a picture of the big house as well as the various uh, military logos from the uh, six different military entities. So that's and I also seen that they had a, the number 2022 on it. So this is one that you mint it like every year, a new one? Or? Yep. We started it last year. So there is a 2021 and they've had been so phenomenally successful where we're having some 2021s reprinted um, or repressed, whatever, um, whatever word you use on that. So very uh it's just a great organization and if any of your listeners go to the michigan football games and they want to meet the military veteran of the game they just can go to our tailgate it's open to anyone to say hello to the vet and um where that is located is if you walked out of the tunnel, out of the stadium, you would take a left and go 30 yards. And where the first set of tailgate right there, you see a 
big sign that says military veteran of the game. And there's a POW flag on a flagpole as well as uh, the American flag. So uh, we have a lot of people who stop by and shake the veterans' hands. And it's truly amazing how humble these individuals are, but how heroic they were, whether it be in Iwo Jima or Pearl Harbor or the Frozen Chosen or some of those other battles that, that we only read about or see documentaries about. They lived it. Yeah, and again, for the listener of the show, just to remind you, that's veteransofthegame.org. And if you want to go to where the tailgate is, it's slash tailgate and just a little click on the tailgate and there's a little map right there for you as well. You can go check it out. Um, didn't know that we were going to turn that way with this interview, but hey, it, it's that's a very important thing. I, I'm glad sure, that you guys do that. Sure. Well, the veterans are more important than any book, I can tell you that much. But but I appreciate you letting me get the little plug in for the vets and uh I'm sure many of your listeners also have military veterans within their family. And and obviously they love football, whether it be Michigan or whatever. There is no uh there is no maize and blue when it comes to these vets. It's the red, white, and blue. Yeah, both of my grandparents uh served and you know, it's just something that as Fourth of July just hit as we're recording this. This is for the listener of the show just a few days ago. And it's just it's always something to think about. Like you said, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be able to sit here speak english the way that we are just anything just you and me being able to have this free open conversation over the airwaves just it wouldn't be doable so yeah i always sit back and want to be able to honor and i'm glad that you do that at a stadium in front of the crowd like that it's uh it's an amazing feeling knowing that you were with this individual honoring him shaking his hand taking care of him for two hours him and his spouse or his family members and then you go sit in the stands stands like anybody else and you hear people stand up all around you and say, I love this part of the game. And they stand up and 110,000 people are cheering for one individual while his picture's up on the Jumbotron screen. It's it's just an unbelievable feeling. So thanks for letting yeah, me I've, chat about that. Of course, Well, of course. I've got these like, um, you know how you, the hair raises and you're, you're like my, my spine is tingling a little bit just thinking about it. And I can just picture myself and the honor that I want to give to these guys and you know, speaking of that, there's a th- there's a, a legend, and of course, it's not the same, but there's a legend in the University of Michigan. A lot of people know this name, Bo Schembechler. And uh, where does that? Let's tie the story in for you and Schembechler family. Like, where wh- you told me before, there's a relationship. We got to talk about it. Exactly. Well, when Bo moved to Ann Arbor in 1969 and was appointed the head coach of Michigan. He moved down the street from us, and his kids attended Angel Elementary School, which is where I went. So he had three sons that he moved to Ann Arbor with. There was Chip, Jeff, and Matt. And Jeff was in my grade. So we played Little League football, Little League baseball, and the Schembechler, Mrs. Schembechler was like a second mom to me and, and a few other kids. So barbecues at the Schembechler's and a lot of, a lot of fun times. So Bo Schembechler was one of my idols, one of my heroes and one of my mentors. And those are three most important things that man can ever give to a young person, being a hero, a role model and a mentor. And so, um, my love for Michigan football had already been solidified, but then being able to be friends with the Schembechler family and going over to their house and, and getting ice cream and things of that nature, it was always fun. I grew up, I became a law enforcement officer. I was a federal agent. Before that, I was a police officer. And after that, I was a chief of police. But when I was a federal agent, I'd go to Bo's house and I'd want to talk football. And he'd want to talk about major arrests that I had made because I was an undercover narcotics agent. So 
you know, Mrs. Schembechler would come in and she'd say, come on, Kenny, come on, Bo, we got to go. And Bo would say, wait, Millie, wait, Kenny, tell Millie about the story when you commandeered the taxi cab to capture the cocaine dealer. And that's exactly how he would say it. And uh, so I, I love Bo Schembechler. He's one of the finest men that ever walked the face of the planet. Yeah, to have that experience too. I mean, people that grew up watching him, whatever, just just they could just imagine being able to do that. I, I would think it'd be like for me. I I go back to maybe not a coach, but like just sitting in the room with Barry Sanders and being able to be hang out with him. I mean, I I told you earlier about the DeLorean, but this is always close at the ready. You know, I'm a big Lions fan and everything. You, you had mentioned up, that. You had mentioned that the Honolulu blue was your color. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, and then and and. A few years after um, they moved to Ann Arbor, eventually they had a son named Shemmy. Um, Mrs. Schembechler and Bo had Bo's only biological son, Shemmy, and he's one of my best friends now. And he wrote the forward for my uh, first book on Michigan football, which was on the Michigan-Minnesota rivalry, the Little Brown Jug. But uh, Shemmy's a good friend of mine, and whenever he visits Ann Arbor, he stays at my house and uh, just a great guy himself. Speaking of a little brown jug, so if you play Michiganopoly, at least I don't know the original one that I played, there's like, you come around the the free parking square and it's like in that first like red or whatever colors is the, Mich- the, the little brown jug. So w- explain what is that rivalry? Like, what is the little brown jug? Sure, I will. But let me tell you, the, the, the error in that game is that there are no areas of free parking anywhere in Ann Arbor on game day. So with that being said... Uh, the Little Brown Jug is basically the rivalry game between Michigan and Minnesota. We could have a whole podcast on that as well. And I basically took a lot of my memorabilia and put together a book, which is 128 pages with about 200 photographs. And I took the readers from the early beginnings of the series uh, where Michigan was playing a game in uh, 1903. It was a brutal battle. And make a long story short, Michigan went to Minnesota to play a game against Minnesota. And they bought their own water jug because Fielding Yost and Michigan coach was worried that Minnesota would taint the water. Well, the game ended up being a tie, which was considered a big upset for Minnesota, and and Michigan left uh, and moved back home and left the water jug there. Well, the manager of the Minnesota team found Michigan's water jug, a 20-cent, five-gallon Red Wing pottery jug, and said, hey, look, in his Scandinavian accent, he says, Joe's forgot his jug. And uh, the the athletic director strapped it up on a rope and pulled it up on the ceiling up above his office, kind of as a captured trophy. But before they did that, they wrote the score, Michigan 6 in very small letters, Minnesota 6 in huge letters. Michigan didn't play again until 1909. And... um, when Michigan visited Minnesota, the athletic director told his captain, go see the Michigan captains and tell them they left this jug here a few years ago, and if they want to play for it, they can win it back. Well, Michigan ended up winning, and that started a rivalry between Michigan and Minnesota. They took the jug, jug back. Over the years, it was painted, and then after a while, the scores were always written on it every year, and the scores are almost um, uh, filling up the entire jug. But it's basically a... Um, clay jug that looks like a huge water jug which is it is it is and uh, the year i wrote the book michigan played minnesota in ann arbor and michigan lost they lost the jug and so the jug went back to minnesota and uh, i was invited to do a speech at the red wing pottery convention about the history of the little brown jug rivalry 
So I go to this convention in Red Wing, Minnesota, thinking there'd be like 50 people at this convention. There was well over a thousand. So it's a great rivalry, a great story. We could do a whole podcast talking about it. I look forward to being a guest of yours another time in the future as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get into that, like you said, on another episode. Um, before we move on to, to the book that of that we brought you on this time for, are there any other books that you published besides L- The Little Brown Drug? Yes, I wrote another book afterwards called The Game, The Michigan-Ohio State Rivalry through Arcadia Press, and it's the exact same format as, as the other one. Hundreds of black and white photos, 128 pages, and synopsises of the series, like who played the big game or the picture of the program, and it talks very key games or whether it was a national championship game, uh, winner would go on to be the national champion, whatever. It talks about Heisman Trophy winners playing in certain games. So it was a fun, uh, if you Googled Ken McGee Michigan football book, you would see the Little Brown Jug and you would also see uh, the game, the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry. And that's Ken McGee, M-A-G-E-E. So those are those, those are the first two. And then moving into the book that we're talking about now, there is a third book I was a co-author of. And as my life got a little bit more busy, I decided to back out as a co-author. And, uh, and then I became very good friends with the gentleman who wrote the book. I have a huge collection of Michigan memorabilia. So my friend Brian Schneider wanted to do a book on Michigan memorabilia. So that's the one I was co-author of for a while. And then I just said, Brian, I can't can't dedicate the time, so you're going to have to finish it up. So it's over 5,000 photographs of Michigan memorabilia. And there are things ranging from sheet music to buttons to pennants to pins to uniforms to helmets to coasters to keychains to cigarette lighters to postcards to posters, uh, you name it, megaphones, pins, lapel pins. And that book is the predecessor for the book we're going to be speaking about today. Brian and I affectionately call that book one. And it's um, over 500 pages, as I said, with several thousand photographs, all color, hardcover book. And that's what this book is right now. You can see it. Your readers, listeners can't, but you can see the collage on the front showing all sorts of Michigan memorabilia. And this book is also available on the website that we're going to be speaking about uh, when it comes to the uh, this book number two that Brian and I wrote together. Yeah, let's get into that. So the book number two that's going to come out in August, um, I have it labeled here as the ultimate Michigan football program and ticket guide. I mean, that that's kind of a bold statement. Why is it the ultimate? Well, I have one of the largest programs and ticket collections in the world. Um, I have a lot of items that aren't even in the Michigan archives, and I've been collecting for over 50 years. But I also have a huge network of friends that are also collectors. So I would say between 80 and 90% of all the items in this book belong to me. That's programs and tickets. So let's talk about the book. The book is 680 pages with over 2,500 photographs of tickets and programs for every Every game known to exist where these programs and tickets exist, every game, plus a synopsis of every single Michigan football game. So 
There's other things too, such as a section on on how society and what's going on in the world uh, mirrors itself sometimes onto a football field or into the cover art of a program. Um, and there are other sections such as the evolution of where Michigan played football games and a handful of other subsections as well, or se- section on special events like where a game was canceled or delayed because of 9-11 or because of uh, John F. Kennedy being assassinated or because of World War II or because of the Spanish flu breakout, things of that nature. So it's a bold statement because I will say this, in my opinion, there's never been a book ever written, not only on college football, but any other sport like this. So you take basketball, hockey, baseball, soccer, you name it, the Olympics, no book has ever been written on this. To The enormity of this project I came up with this idea about 30 years ago, and if it wasn't for Brian Schneider, the project would have never happened. Brian is very adept at technology, and he put everything together for us to create this book. But I mentioned I have a network of friends. Well, the first set of friends that I have are a gentleman named Jim Parker and Bob Rozick. They are Michigan football historians. One lives in Washington, one lives in Michigan. They don't even know each other, but they spent their lives writing synopsises on Michigan football games. So they gave me their synopsises and Brian and I put them together and created something from all of their research that they had done for decades. That's first network of friends. The second network of friends is we wanted this book to be as complete as possible. So we contacted hundreds of collectors and anybody that gave us a ticket um, to put in the book is mentioned in the credits. But say, for example, I had a stub, say, from the 19... um, 34 Michigan-Georgia Tech game or something like that. If a friend of mine or another collector had a full ticket, we would put the full ticket within. So I have I collect full tickets, but I don't have them all, but I've got thousands of tickets. But the various collectors were able to lend us the images of their larger tickets. Then we went to the libraries, the third part of the networking, and that is the Bentley Historical Library. We went through their archives. So we got a lot of programs and tickets from the 1800s and the early 1900s that aren't in anybody's collection. I personally have the oldest program known to exist. It's the fifth game Michigan ever played against Yale. Michigan played Yale in 1881, and uh, you can see that is basically a scorecard, and it's about the size of a postcard, and uh, it's got some great English, the way they wrote the letters in, in this old English style is pretty neat. So we take the collection of other collectors, combining them with my collection, we take the write-ups from Bob Rozick and, and Jim Parker, and then we take the research to the museums, and then we take the various schools that I've worked with. I've been to Minnesota. We take their museums and their libraries, and then the network of collectors, where there's a huge network of Big Ten collectors and other school collectors, Notre Dame, Purdue, Iowa, Ohio State, Michigan State, Minnesota, various collectors from various schools all participate in this project, and they're all listed in there. So when I came up with the idea 30 years ago, I was a federal agent, I was working overseas, and I met the chief of the Secret Service that had a contact in his brother, who was the head of President Gerald Ford's protection detail. So I contacted the president through the Secret Service, 
and communicated with the president, told him I wanted to write a book on the history of Michigan football programs. And I asked him if he would write me a letter of endorsement. And so President Ford, over 25 years ago, wrote the introductory letter for my book. And that's all explained in the book as well, as showing the introductory letter on um, presidential stationery. And, and, and it's explained in the book as to how 25 years later this book comes out and there's a letter from President Ford who's who's been gone for almost two decades. So um, the ultimate, absolutely. Again, I will reiterate, I don't believe a book like this has ever been done. Um, and I've searched bookstores for years looking at old antique books and things of that nature. So is it a big statement? Yes. Is it as big as a big house? Probably not quite that big, but it's a it's a pretty bold statement, but I think we can back it up. Maybe not as quite as big as, as, as the big house, but I saw an email somewhere during like our either it was either directed to me or some of the other guys in the network, but something about a 7,000 square foot warehouse filled with memorabilia is that all yours or this is just part of like a network no that is mine i have a warehouse in chelsea michigan because one of my side gigs is i buy and sell sports memorabilia i have a museum kind of in my house my lower level of the home is uh basically a 2000 square foot museum of tons of michigan memorabilia dating back to the 1800s and then a lot of my leftovers and and a lot of the other things that i decided not to present on the walls or duplicates or whatever are placed in a warehouse and there's all sorts of great memorabilia in the warehouse and people come and visit me from all over the country and and they just kind of go through boxes and see some of the things on the wall it's uh it's uh it's a lot of fun i've met a lot of people that way and and uh, all of them with a similar passion for Michigan, as well as some other teams as well. Okay, so then I'm going to throw a curveball. I'm going to so take me back to the moment where somebody, you know, I don't have to mention names or anything, but they were in this warehouse and they basically broke down and cried or had a memory or something like that because of they remembered a particular event. Well, that happens more than you could that than you would think. And basically, usually what happens is when they want to find old Michigan yearbooks and it's a husband and wife and normally it's the woman's dad who might have played in the band or was a student in the 40s or 30s. And I've got yearbooks back to 19 to the 1800s and they open this yearbook and it's got this musty misty smell of you know age and and um like you're in an old library or something but in reality you're just in an old warehouse and they pull this book out the pages say this book hasn't been opened in 50 60 70 years and there he is you know norm Johnson, class of 1934, and member of the band, or whatever the case may be, and and so those are very great memories. And then there's always the the memory of uh, the guy who um, gets the present from his wife, or vice versa, where they want the very first football game ever played when when they were born. So if they were born, say, for example, August 2nd of 1968, we find the very first game in September from 68, and that was the very first game that they were played. And then there's the rare entities where a game was played on somebody's birthday, and then there's also a lot of fun when people come and visit the warehouse and just go through things and they find the very first game they ever went to programs. But there's so many other things, bobbleheads and buttons and pins and lapel pins and and pennants and cards and sheet music and you name it. We've got it in the warehouse. 
So is this an, a warehouse that's just anything U of M or other schools too? It's a great question. And what happens is when you buy and sell sports memorabilia, you get contacted by people and you buy out of states. So sometimes to get one item that you might want for your own personal museum, you might have to buy the whole kit and caboodle and bring a couple of pickup trucks to load everything up. And uh, that happens quite frequently. But along those lines, too, what happens is you get a spillover on a state sale. So I've got boxes with Michigan State stuff boxes with Ohio State stuff and boxes with Notre Dame stuff. And I try and keep those separated. So when those collectors come by or they've got family members, I can I can have them find those Notre Dame, Michigan State or generic college football fans. I also have college basketball stuff in there, college hockey, things of that nature. I only collect football, but I accumulate all the other stuff. Yeah, that <laughs> I, I just I can only pick, one day I'm gonna have to come visit. It sounds like, I mean you're n- not that far from me, so just just to see all these different things is that sounds like were you ever okay? Your experience as a DEA agent tracking down the cartel. Did you use any of those skills tracking down some of the particular memorabilia you wanted to get? It's interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, I would say yes. Uh, tenacity number one. Number two is locating people. You might hear somebody like, hey, there's this guy named Hunter. He lives in California and he's got a Rose Bowl program from 1902. So you you do your research and you start tracking these individuals down. So I was very proficient at tracking fugitives and I would utilize the same technique and trying to find various collectors. Um, so in answer to your question, yes. And when I was in and interesting stories, when I was in South America, this is before we had a lot of eBay and things of that nature. I subscribed to a sports collector's digest. It would be mailed to me down at the American embassy. And, and um, so I'd be calling from overseas to say, for example, uh, heritage auctions or master auctions or one of these uh, Leland's auction houses, placing my bids uh, from a foreign number and things of that nature. They got to know me, but it was quite interesting. So being a federal agent also allowed me the opportunity as I traveled the world, I also traveled the United States. And so on the days when I wasn't working or it's in a weekend or I'm on temporary assignment somewhere, I might go visit a local antique store and I would give them my card. And what I did was I took a postcard. I made a postcard out of an old Michigan football program. So this, you can see, is the 1927 Michigan Navy program with a beautiful image of blue and yellow with a kicker on the front. And... Um, it was the first year Michigan played at Michigan Stadium as well. And on the back, I wrote, Michigan football collector seeking items. And uh, I never put an address. I never printed it on the back because what I did was every time I had a new assignment where I moved someplace, I would take a rubber, I'd get a rubber stamp made and I'd just stamp, stamp my address right on the back. As you can see, I'm still doing that. I just stamp the address on the back. So I hand these cards out. And you know, you re- reach the pinnacle of collecting and maybe you've gone a little bit too far. And when you go to a sports show in the middle of Texas and you go walking around looking at the various tables and you see this one table with some um, basic uh, paper items in a box for sale and you find your postcard that you created for sale in a box for a buck or two or three or whatever as a as a um, as a vintage postcard, so to speak. So it either means it's super cool or it's getting super old or we or both. You know, that actually leads me into something that I that there's this future technology and I'm not sure how much familiar you're 
familiarity you have with the blockchain and NFTs and all these types of things. I know about the NFTs. My daughter called me once and said, do you think I should buy a Tom Brady NFT? And I said, what is an NFT? So she explained it all to me. The other one, I'm not sure what it was, what you said. Well, 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 blockchain is just like the technology of which an NFT would be built upon. But at any rate, so long story short, I, what you're talking about there, so you as a creator of an artwork, and if it gets resold down the road because the way that the smart contracts are written, it's like that creator would still get some kind of commission in perpetuity based on like whatever contract was written. So it might be sold 35 times as a collectible. So you know maybe some guy writes a new program and draws this whatever, and then it gets sold like 35 times and they get the, the commission, I guess you could call it down the road. But I just maybe think of that. And that's where a lot of these, like you have a warehouse where now eBay is having this, they have like a secure warehouse where people can sell these memorabilia is based on, on the on the blockchain, but they never actually get it until they want to turn that token in and then get the physical. But they might sell it to five different people before they actually get that physical product. I'll have to refresh my daughter's memory and see how her Tom Brady NFT is going. Uh, me, I personally would rather have the item right in my hot little hands, such as this 1898 Michigan versus Chicago ticket stub. Uh, one of the oldest ticket stubs known to exist and one of the most historic games in the history of Michigan football it was after that game that uh, where where this ticket only cost $2 to get into the game in 1898 on Thanksgiving Day and Michigan defeated mighty Chicago. And from that point, there was a gentleman, a young student named Louis Elbel, who took the train ride back and it was such a great victory for Michigan. He was writing some notes and he decided to write a little song about the game that became known as the Victors. And that was the game Hail to the Victors was written for. So, But my point is, I'd rather have that item than an NFT. Oh, no doubt. I mean, again, that's going to be uh, well, just getting sidetracked here, but it's going to be both, I think. It's not going to be or. It's going to be an and type of thing in the future. So take me back to that 1898 on this DeLorean. Sure. You're sitting in the, I'm guessing it's a boxcar train that this guy's in on the way back home because they didn't have the, the vehicle back then. So you're sitting there on the wall being able to write it and just what's going through your head as you know now what that song will become? Oh my gosh, can you imagine if he knew what that song became? But um, um, John Philip Sousa, a handful of years later, was in Ann Arbor and played that song for, uh, for in, in, at, at one of the, the auditoriums in Ann Arbor. It was, he was asked to play that song. So I think that kind of put it on the map as well. But it just basically became one of the most famous fight songs in the history of Michigan football, all because Michigan won this game in Chicago and this kid wrote a little ditty on his way back. Yeah. It's one of those things where, I mean, even now there's my high school, I don't know. I think I told you before it was Frank Muth, but that like, they always play like almost all schools in Michigan. Like they have a little song, like, with that somehow involved as far as like, you know, like the, and then even like the whole gold blue type thing, it's, you know, go mooth and all that. So it's just thinking about it, going back to my old, my old school days there, uh, old school days. Now you get a mission, you know, a, a, you could be Liam Neeson if you want, considering your back history, but you have to leave right now and you're bolting to go. You can pick one of those items in all of your warehouse and you're going to go with only one item. What item you taking? Um, when it comes to tickets and programs, the ticket I just showed you, 
in the program would be the 1881 Yale. And there was a uh, time that I owned another program that I would have taken very quickly, and that was the 1902 Rose Bowl program. That was this. It looks just like this. What we did with these 1902 Rose Bowl program where Michigan traveled to Pasadena to play in the very first Rose Bowl and Michigan defeated Stanford 49 to nothing. This program is extremely rare, extremely expensive, and it's about 40 pages. I worked with the university and we put it on a high digital scanner and I made replicas of it. We we made we noted that it's a limited edition reproduction and we market these as well. And uh, you might say, well, where's the original? Well, I had a daughter who was in college and at DePaul University in Chicago, and somebody made me an offer for the program, which helped pay for at least a year's worth of college. And so I sold it. And that's very rare for me to do. But I guess piece of paper in my basement versus my daughter's college diploma, I think I probably have my priorities somewhat in the right place. And uh, I'm very proud of her now. She graduated and did a great job. But uh, that uh, that program is now in the hands of somebody else. And uh, I don't even know who's because a dealer broke, brokered the deal. So so those are pretty much the three paper items. There's some other items like a button from the 1902 Rose Bowl program game. Uh, there's um, there's a handful of other things, but uh, yeah, there's there's so much, and I get that asking asked that question frequently, and that's pretty much the standard response. Yeah, I mean it's hard to really pick one for sure when it comes to stuff, but I mean that it's just so such an old document and you you, like when you just put it up there that that program the artwork like when did it start changing where it was really and you mentioned earlier like it would tell us the times and it'd be like the days in the history when did it start changing to truly artwork on the programs well i think in the early 1900s this rose ball program was very bland on the cover but it's interesting because there's some very cool pictures on the on the inside. But then when you look through it and they show a diagram of the field, for example, they even have the 55-yard line back in this time day and age. And so it's fascinating. But let's talk about that artwork because depending on the game, the bigger the game, the cooler the program was. And when you look at the book that we put together – you'll see some incredible, incredible pictures. But you'll also see some very boring post uh, programs. For example, the 1917 Michigan-Detroit program is almost looks like a piece of newspaper, which it is. It's got a picture of Fielding Yost there, and it's just some bland print. There's some other programs that, that might be uh, just a, a, a colorful cover with the words of who's playing in the game and that's it maybe even the date but then big games and back in the day the big games were against chicago and pennsylvania and some of the teams on the on the east coast as well so for example this program is a 1907 michigan um pennsylvania program look at the artwork on that the picture of the the player's uniform and for your listeners there's uh it's basically he's wearing an old football sweater with a block M and he's got a full head of hair and, and these bamboo uh, pants that protect the, uh, the thighs. And um, it's just an awesome piece of artwork. You take a look at something like that. 
Or you could also take a look, for example, the 1913 Michigan-Pennsylvania program, just another great image of a Michigan football player, all drawings. And that's the cool thing about the old art. And then sometimes they're pen and ink. For example, this is 1914 at Michigan State. And it's basically um, um, uh, ink type of uh, picture of a football player with his sweater around his uh, around his back carrying a football. So you've got some of those images. And I mentioned, for example, the 1917 program that's pretty bland and dry, black and white, with just a photograph on the cover. But away programs as well. And if I did mention it, it should be fairly fairly obvious. The book that we wrote also has all the away tickets and programs as well. So it's just not games in Ann Arbor. It's all of them. But uh, here's one um, from, uh, this is 1917 at Pennsylvania. Just incredible artwork on the cover of that as well. And then you have the very first game played at Michigan Stadium. and Not the first game, but the dedication game. Uh, play that year, the Michigan-Ohio State program in 1927, showing an aerial artist's rendition of the program. So that, I hope, answers your question. Some of the programs over the years were pretty bland. Sometimes um, in certain years, they use the exact same cover for every game, but they might have changed the color a little bit of each game. So if they were playing Michigan State, they might have a green border at the very top, and when they're playing Ohio State, they might have a red barrier border. But when it comes to the artwork on programs, I'd like, if you don't mind, I'll hijack your, I'll carjack your DeLorean briefly and <laughs> go back to a previous part of the conversation. And that is how football and what's going on in society mirror one another. For example, 1928, um, the Michigan, Minnesota, I'm sorry, the Michigan, Indiana program is right here. And you can see there's a drawing of an airplane. It's a very cool looking cover, also a very rare program. And it says on it, Spirit of Bloomington. Well, obviously, this is a takeoff on the spirit of St. Louis from when Charles Lindbergh was the first individual to fly across the Atlantic. Or here's an incredible program from 1918 versus Michigan State. The artwork at the time, it was known as Michigan Agricultural College. But the artwork is incredible. But if you look at the top and the bottom, it shows very small, small images of several soldiers marching. And uh, on the bottom and at the very top, with an incredible artistic view of in the middle of a football player running the ball. So what does this symbolize? This was World War One. So you take a look at those programs and you can kind of see. And when you look at some of the artwork on the insides of some of the other programs, you see some amazing images as well. And then there was the 9-11 game, for example. Uh, Michigan was kind of playing the game, and obviously all games were canceled that week. And uh, so Michigan didn't reprint the program with a new date. What they did was they took the old or the program that was supposed to be played that day, and they put a wrap on it. They put a new cover on it. And they kept the old cover on it, too. They just put a new cover on it, which basically showed uh, the American flag and some other things that were symbolic of the unity of our country at uh, during the time of the 9-11 attacks. So was that 
not more recent, like say, I don't know, we'll call it within the last 20 years at, after 9-11, did they, does that really happen that much for the programs or is it more so very straightforward, this team versus this team and they don't have cultural, you know, uh, influences? No, I would, I would, I would say that there's not that much cultural in instances on the cover of the programs. Probably um, some of the programs for various schools, sometimes Military Appreciation Day, will get a special cover for the program. And um, But there could be some other schools that have had some other influences, uh, outside factors that, that might have come up that are commemorated on the cover of the program. Some of those, I, I don't know what they are, but I know, for example, like Northwestern had a great military appreciation day cover, and there's some other schools that have done that as well. Um, but our book will show every single one of those. And, um, and, and very briefly, I'm going to hold up the cover of the book. This is the, our, our rough draft book right here. And uh, you can see how many pages it is when I go like that. And it's just a beast as I flip through the pages. Like I said, there's 680 pages. Um, and it outlines everything you'd want to know about a game that day. What the ticket looks like, what the program looks like, what the score was, the attendance, the location of the game, as well as a brief synopsis of the game. Yeah, I mean, looking at that book, what you could do is you could probably just give that to the uh, the linemen. And instead of having to do squat day, they could just pick that book up and head up and down a little bit. I was hoping to weigh this book today, but I can't weigh it because I don't have the hardcover with me yet, but it's going to be close to a five pound book. There's no question about it. And, uh, how, how big was that? Um, the dimensions. Uh, I think it's length. a standard large book. I think it's, um, okay. what is it? Eight and a half by, by 11. So, so kind of like a coffee table book. Basically. Oh, absolutely. It will be a coffee table book. I don't anticipate, Anyone picking up this book and starting at page one, going to page 680. But right, I anticipate right. people picking up this book and being able to look in any page they open to, they'll learn something. And it could be the several hundred pages on programs or the other pages that we have surrounding other topics dealing with Michigan football but or Michigan football programs. But the goal of this book is to be like in a bookstore. And... And a guy walks up to the books and he sees this and he says to his wife, honey, you remember that very first game we went to? Remember that? That game, Michigan-Ohio State, and Billy Taylor scored that touchdown and everybody yells, touchdown Billy Taylor now is Bo Beat Woody and, in 1971. Remember that? We went to that game and they open the book and they go to and they go to 1971 and they say, oh, there it is right here. You know, the 1971 game, Michigan versus Ohio State, 104,016 people were there, and Michigan won 10 to 7. That's the program. That's the ticket. And they and they read the synopsis on the game. And, and that's kind of what I'm looking for. Somebody saying, you know, my dad loved Michigan football, and now he's, he's in a uh, retirement home or whatever. I'm looking for something. And anybody who's seen the prototype for the book says this is, in their opinion, one of the greatest books ever written. And um, when it comes to football, and I'm I'm proud of that. I'm not bragging about. It. I'm just saying what people have said about it. Yeah, I mean, I'll throw that out there too. Just in my head, without having it physically in my hands right now, too, and seeing what you've you've created there, it's it's beyond just learning the history of a game or a program or whatever it is. The when you take it to that human factor, like you just mentioned, of 
recreating a memory in someone's head, just like what your 7,000 foot square foot warehouse does, just all these things, like the emotion and the attachment of the memory, because that's what sports can do for us. And I I think this book is going to do that for a lot of Michigan fans, but then also fans that are just in general of, you know, I remember watching that game, like you said, with my grandpa who now has passed away and that kind of thing, just being able to flip to that page. If they're sitting there eating their nachos, hopefully, hey, make sure you don't eat the nachos and then touch it. Make sure you wash your hands first and get back to the book. But then, you know, just being able to do that kind of thing is just going to be interesting and neat for people. Well, and, and I've had a lot of success too in regards to former Michigan players who are interested in, for example, today the captain of the 1979 Michigan football team ordered ordered a copy of the book. And I made sure him that he knew that his picture was in the book because he was on the cover of the 1979 Michigan-Indiana program. So there's a, there's a good memory for him as well as, as he looks at it. So we're excited about it. Um, we've got uh, on the back of the book, it's endorsed by Rick Leach, Michigan All-American, and uh, who um, was one of the most prolific quarterbacks in the history of Michigan football and one of the greatest athletes the University of Michigan has ever seen, and and um, uh, as he was also an All-American in baseball. But uh, so we're excited about it. The book comes out on August 12th, and uh, we're going to have it in our hands on August 12th. Uh, the printing uh, company happens to be about a mile from my house, coincidentally, the book publisher. So that was purely coincidence but it's it's really nice so you can only imagine what it would be like to pick up a load of books that were just printed and they all weigh close to five pounds each so we'll be getting a little bit of a workout there that day so again so if the listener of the show wants to kind of say pre-order this book where would they go exactly that's a great question and thank you for asking well earlier i might have provided my phone number but for anybody interested in bulk purchases. For example, they want to buy five or six, we do give a discount. And um, they can contact me on my cell phone at area code 503-781-3174. I live in Michigan. It's an Oregon cell phone, but I live in Michigan. Area code 503-781-3174. So now if you want to go online and order it, we're doing a publication special right now. If you order it before August 12th, we're trying to get as many pre-orders as possible. The following happens. If you enter the code GOBLUE, you get $10 off. And also, if you're one of the pre-orders, we've also created a special card that's about um, 6 by 10 and it basically is an artist rendition of the history of the Michigan football uniform with um, over 10 images that he drew of program. Uh, uniforms that start in the 1800s and go up to the present. Um, and so we're excited about that piece of artwork. And where can they go to enter the special code and get this incredible book and, and be able to get that special limited edition card? They can go to youmitchfootball.com. You like university, just you. And then Mich, like Michigan, M-I-C-H, and then football.com. So you mishfootball.com and that book will pop right up as well as that other book on memorabilia that I spoke about as well and you can also get a discount on that that was book number one so um, again you can contact me at Ken McGee and my cell phone is 503-781-3174 
or you can go to youmissfootball.com and enter the code GOBLUE and, and reserve your copy. We're printing, a, obviously, a limited edition number based on the fact that uh, we're self-publishing. We're putting the money up front all ourselves. And then I'll put links to the show notes for the listener of the show as well, and then we'll make sure that we get them over there. Um, before we get into some of the last words of wisdom, i got to ask you, so I'm going on the website to uh, McGee, Forsheriff.com, and I see a photo with President Obama. Yes. Uh, first off, I got to ask him, did you give him some crap and say, go Lions, because he's a Bears fan for me? No, I didn't. But what I did say to him was, I, I shook his hand, I chatted with him for a minute, and as I started to walk away, and I said, thank you for being here at the university. And um, and then I, I tapped him on the shoulder, or more like on the, not on the shoulder, but on the, like the forearm and kind of patted him on the more right around the elbow area. And I just said, and go blue. And he goes, you got that right. And uh, obviously I was a law enforcement officer. So the secret service agents didn't feel any, any threat by me tapping the, as I was walking by, I'm kind of like patting him on the elbow saying, Hey, go blue. And uh, that was pretty fun. Uh, it was uh, quite an honor to run the entire security project uh, to protect the president of the United States. I was, um, proud of it and happy that it ended very, very well. And, uh, and my mother loved that photograph by the way. So God bless her. And, and, uh, uh, I was pleased to forward that photograph to her. Yeah. That's something that would have been a, a once in a lifetime type of thing too. And I, I've always liked president Obama. So, uh, besides that, I just want to get with you the last words of wisdom uh, for the listener of the show, but I want to tell you like through the lens of, Creating this book and the journey that it took you on, as well as your fandom for University of Michigan and memorabilia, like what's the last words of wisdom you want to give to the listener of the show? When it comes to collecting, in my opinion, focus on one small area as opposed to a huge area. So, for example, somebody says, I collect Michigan memorabilia. That can be huge. You could have hockey, basketball, baseball, swimming, Olympic athletes, retired athletes, um, former athletes, high school athletes, you name it. It could be huge. Uh, so my words of wisdom, isolate, and really focus in one area. And then once you've mastered that area, kind of move out into other areas. Me, my area is Michigan football, specialization in programs and tickets, but I also have thousands of buttons and programs and things of that nature as well. So, And as we age, we realize that these things aren't nearly as important as there are other things in life. So uh, just remember, just remember, you may own them, but you only own them for a while. You're really, if you think about it, a curator. And these items eventually will go to somebody else, whether you give them to somebody else or some of your relatives give them to somebody else. So take good care of them, enjoy them, share them. And, uh, and I will say this, one of the other things, my advice is share your collections with people. Don't hoard, don't hide them in boxes and don't invite people over to your house. Share the love and, and the things that you've collected because you'll meet a lot of incredible, incredible people that way. And and I can honestly say I've met a lot of very interesting people and cultivated and developed a lot of great friendships. So that's my words of wisdom. There you go. Just remember that you're often more of a curator than the owner of a piece of memorabilia. And you're the temporary holder, mind you, of this precious artifact. So take care of it and even share it with others so that all can get the memory and joys 
of the games that we know and love. With that, I hope that you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, well, then you gotta do me a favor and leave an honest review over on your podcast app of choice. Well, I guess if you didn't enjoy it, you can leave that too so I can get better, right? Also, if you're not subscribed or following this podcast, then what the heck are you waiting for? It's free. It's easy. All you gotta do is mash that button. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.